step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hello and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig and this is episode 13. Um, I'm hoping that you've listened to some of our episodes prior. Uh, we're having a wonderful time uh, with this show. It's brand new and it is hosted on Podbean, so you'll find it at Hat Radio dot podbean.com and i would ask you to share the link with others essentially the essence of hat radio is to produce something positive it's produce something beautiful i want to talk to people about their life experiences no matter who they are no matter what their background is if they're stars that's fantastic uh i have uh david shore from hollywood said he would do a show with us and i'm hoping that comes to fruition but by the same token i'm also trying to set up an interview with a barber or with a waiter. Why? Because it's those people who really understand in the way that they understand it, human behavior. We have uh, with us today uh, someone whom I've known for, I don't know, four, four decades. Yeah, at least, at least. At least, right? Yeah. Although we haven't seen each other very much, but we will say hello from time to time and touch bases. I was uh, dear friends with her husband, and her name is Gabrielle Klein. Hello, Gabrielle. Hi, I'm from. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you again, too. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm excited about this because you actually live in Israel. Right. Right. You live in, right, right. in the settlements. Um, in Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. Yeah. And you've come here to uh, celebrate your father's 95th birthday. Right. Which is beautiful. That's yeah, my privilege. Yes, absolutely. We're going to talk about your father and your mother throughout the show. Um, but suffice it to say right now, I remember years and years ago when we were talking and you spoke about your parents and you spoke about them in such glorious terms. You Actually, there's a quote that I found uh, on social media whereby you said, my childhood was as solid, was as rooted, was as safe, it's not the word you used, but something like that, yeah. as you could have possibly imagined. So I'm very excited about talking about your parents. Great, me yeah. too. Yes. It's I'm excited question. about talking to you about your trip to Israel, your move to Israel. Move. And you're also a doctor. Right. Family, do you, family physician. Do you feel like a doctor inside, by the way? Yes. You do? I, I feel very grateful to be able to practice medicine. You must. I love it. Yeah. And it's also a real calling for me. How so? Um, I feel like my personality is uh, I want to help people and I'm given the tools by medicine and um, I always wanted to be a social worker because I wanted to help people who are less fortunate than myself. And my dad said, no, you can't be a social worker. So I said, okay, I'll become a doctor and I do half my work as social work because I work in um, ultra-Orthodox community uh, who is quite impoverished in Israel. And I do a lot of work with the families, and I know the families really well, and I practice family medicine, which is very exciting for me. Okay, so we're going to get into all of that stuff. Um, I like to begin the show doing a monologue, which really, quite frankly, is a dialogue. Okay. Okay, before we talk about your life, just a couple of interesting points to speak of. Um, 
The other night, I was at Howard Pasternak's house. You don't know Howard, I imagine. No. So Howard does post-production on this show. He's a very sweet man, very bright. He's an engineer. You know how engineers think? Yeah. Yeah. Differently than me. Or me. <laughs> All right. I'm not, a, I'm not of that ilk. He's always talking about things. I have no idea what he's saying. Right. And when we were finished doing post-production work on uh, that episode of Hat Radio, um, I sat, I put on my shoes, and I left. Soon enough, I realized uh, I was wearing his shoes. Okay. Have you ever done that, left with someone's shoes? No. Have you ever left with anybody, something of anybody's? Nope. You have not. Are you a meticulous person? You seem very well put together. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a meticulous person. Yeah. I would say that because, believe it or not, I'm going back to my parents. Yeah. Because of the, dis- and my father, my discipline that they taught me. And always doing your best and always putting your best foot forward. So I might appear that I'm, I'm not so, so meticulous, but I'm very careful about responsibility. And, you know, I would never put, I, I don't think I've ever put on somebody else's shoes because I would look before my shoes, you know, they taught me that. There you go. So yeah. that's kind of anathema to who I am. But when you made your six kids lunches, let's say, when they were all at home and going to school, yeah. would you do it the morning of or the night before? Morning up. The morning up. Eh? Morning up. <laughs> <laughs> Running after them with the lunches. You right. know, I was always right. um, always doing a lot of things. So uh, the kids would always say, oh, mommy's always late. But mommy was always, I realized later on, giving myself more um, being nicer to myself that I was doing a lot of things. You so that's have, why I was, that's why I was, I was juggling a lot of things. So that's why I was always late. I wasn't late today because I wasn't juggling a lot of stuff. Did all six kids need different breakfasts or lunches? No. Did you make the same lunch for each kid? I made mostly the same. What would you have made? Wow, you're asking things from a long time These ago. These are tough ones. Yeah, really hard. Uh, tuna, but important. <laughs> tuna sandwiches, <laughs> carrots. Uh, you know, before I moved to Israel, I was very, very particular about uh, health food and organic. And then uh, just dealing with the immigration and the aliyah, kind of, I couldn't deal with everything at once. So I gave them more, you know, like these, they call them tea bowl, they're veggie burgers. And I would just warm them up for them and put it in an apple. Are, are a you carrot. a good cook? I love to cook. Do you? Love to cook. Uh, gourmet-ish? Um, I wish it would be gourmet. Let's ask my, you know, my kids who mostly eat my food. I learned to lo- how to cook and how to be a creative cook and use my creativity in cooking from my mother-in-law, actually, who you know, who was passed away recently. Yes, I'm she sorry. taught me. She taught me how to cook. So, she, so like on Shabbat, when you you make chicken. Well, on Shabbat, um, I make a lot of stuff, mostly mostly vegetables and uh, lots of trays of vegetables, or roasted vegetables, different. I, t- I try to go to the shuk if I can, the market in Jerusalem, and see what's there, see what's pretty, try to put it together, and that's my actually my funnest part. And it's only probably one of my most uh, abilities to express myself creatively. I never thought of myself as a creative person, but when I started to see how I cook, because I could never use a recipe, and I don't like to bake because it's very particular. Yes, it is. You have to follow the one cup, and I'm not such a great baker. It's a science. Right. I more love to take take any ingredient I find, and my mother-in-law taught me this. Put it together, spice it up, and it's just really fun. It's a fun thing for me. Dennis, your husband likes your food? Dennis, my husband likes my food. He yeah. does. He'll yeah. eat it right to the end. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, if it's not too spicy. I have my biggest fan and my biggest co-conspirator is my son, Arye, who's uh, you know just finished uh, serving in Golani. And he's a real foodie and loves to cook. And so he really appreciates it when, you know, the meat has to be bought fresh. The vegetables have to be fresh. And, you know, as long as the ingredients are good, you know, he appreciates the food. Uh, I find all that imagery fantastic, by the way. 
I love food and cooking. I also do. I, I enjoy love it so it much. So much. Yeah. So much. Yeah. But back to Howard's shoes. Okay. And so <laughs> I, I was wearing Howard's shoes and uh, literally moments after I put them on my feet, it struck me that these were uh, very good shoes. And for some reason, I felt as though if they were my shoes, somehow they had gotten better. But in essence, they were not. And after about a day, I realized I was wearing his shoes. And here's what I thought. And tell me if this jives with your thinking. You know that there is a law within Judaism that when someone passes away, you can wear their clothes. Right. But you cannot wear their I didn't know that. You cannot wear, wear their, their shoes. shoes. Okay. Yeah. I remember that when my father passed away in mm-hmm. 1989. Um, I remember specifically hearing that, and, and I've thought about why would it be, Gabrielle, that you could not wear somebody's shoes? Well, why would you think? Just throw it out an idea. Cook something up over there. Well, you'll never have the same experiences. Kind of. That, you know, the other person had. You could never. It's kind of... Um, a very good way to think about looking at other, often the kids will come home or somebody will say, oh, look at this person and they have this and, and oh, they seem to have. And I said, well, you never know what their pecola is, what their package is. You and, do not. And, and you need to take your own package and make the best of it. Right. And your package is multifaceted and uh, your own colors and your own depth. And you really never know Correct. what other people are experiencing. You do not. Even if you're inside their home, you never know. And it's also it's a package that's comprised of their past, their history, their present, their future, their internal workings, their uh, wirings, their emotional wirings. Their uh, everybody's born different, and mm-hmm. everybody I see for my own kids, they're all born into the same family, but they experienced it differently. Are some more like you? Some more like Dennis? Or is it amalgam? Amalgam. Uh, Dennis hates when we compare people to other people because each person is their own individual. Yes, they are very they're much. They're totally so. their own people. Very much so. And uh, they're um, not like any of us. They had a different experience uh, growing up. You know, part of them in Israel, part of them in Toronto. Um, they're all looking for different things, and we really respect their individuality. That's actually unique to our family. So, what is unique to your family? We get well, our kids are all individuals. They're no, they don't follow a pattern. You know, I, so, I, that doesn't surprise me for a moment. Well, because you know my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Not for a moment. His family is the most unique yeah. sort of march to the beat of your own drum family that I know. Right, right. right. Like I know Uncle Ruben. I know yeah. Eli. I, I sort of knew his father. Yeah. But they all took their own direction right. in the way that they felt was best. Right. 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 So, 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 a shoe molds to your foot. Are you a hiker? Yes, so, I actually just climbed Kilimanjaro. Yes, I know. I'm excited about talking yeah, about that. Yeah, we Very thought, yeah. Very excited. Yeah. Good for you. That was really exciting. Very excited yeah. about talking about that. So, so I'm definitely a hiker. Okay, so you are a hiker. So you know that a hiking boot, if worn after a certain period of time, it does, in fact, mold right. to your foot. Right. I was just talking to Clive Caldwell, who did the previous episode, and he walked along the Camino, which is about 820-kilometer trek in Spain, and he said eight months prior to doing the walk, he wore his hiking shoes to right. work them in. I wore them every day. For, for how long? Uh, I wore them for three and a half months, and I wore them to work, to shul, to Shabbat, to Shabbat dinner. I was always walking around with my hiking, and, and at work, everywhere. So if I would have come over to your house and by mistake slipped into your hiking shoes, which wouldn't be possible, I'm, I'm assuming my yeah. foot's bigger, Yeah. Uh, we both would have been uncomfortable with that. Right. Because it's right. your shoe. Right. Because it's the sole of your foot. 
that has molded to that shoe. Right. So some of this is kind of romantic. I like it. But I like, I like it. it too. I like it. I like, I like it the imagery. Right, exactly. So this was my determination after I wore Howard Pasternak's shoes. So, okay, so part A of our monologue. Can people ultimately be happy? Or how happy can we be? I've started to think a little bit about happiness yeah. recently. Um, um, I'm not sure how to define it. I don't even know what it means. And I think it's more of a term that is more connected to our modern Western culture more than, I'm not sure the right term is happy. I'm sure there's other things, fulfilled, contentment, uh, enlightened, um, connected, because um, life is happy, sad, depressing, exciting. I mean, there's so many, it's so multi-dimensional that I can't, happy is, is a word that I don't relate to myself. It's more like a pop word, you know, like happy birthday, Did I see the signs all over your house or happy, uh, you know, the song happy, you know. Um, it's right. more of a, you know, kind of like a coin kind of word. I don't, I'm not I, sure. I have to point out something to you, by the way, is that you have an eye for what's happening around you. Because most, most people who come here do not see those happy birthday signs. And by the way, those are five, six, seven, eight years old. They've been on my wall since then. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's like always my son's birthday. Right. I hear right. it. And when you say you have to be conscious of what's going on around you, why Why do you? I feel for myself because as a doctor, um, I, you know, I've read a few books uh, where you make your diagnosis within the first there's a set, there's a book that actually talks about it to the detriment of doctors, but if you know about it, it's good. Within the first, I think, four seconds of the patient walking in the room, you've already got a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking, mm -hmm. and I'm looking at everything. I'm looking at how they walk in, how they, their body language. I'm looking at things around me. I also live in a um, amazing, beautiful, wonderful country, but you have to be aware of what's happening around you. The country is Israel. Yeah. Yes, and you live in Judea and Samaria. Yes, in Efrat. So in there Judea was. And Hills. So there was a, a a terrorist attack this morning, or yesterday, perhaps. Okay. And that would have been very close to your home. Okay. Are you frightened? No. Are you frightened for your kids? No. Because. It's unclear why I'm not frightened. Ah, you've dealt with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not frightened because things happen all the time. Um, you can't control anything. I see people that try to control their lives and yeah. put them, set themselves in safe places. And things happen to them, bad things. So um, I try to teach them to be aware. To um, We actually live uh, very close to some places of, of some serious attacks. My son was a Golani fighter, so that, that was quite frightening. Um, but I'm proud of uh, my kids serving in the Army. I'm proud of uh, the fact that we're allowed to defend us. We're defending ourselves. We have an army. I don't know why I'm not scared. Have you become very, very, very frightened through this process of your son being a Golani in the army? No. Have you ever gotten very frightened? No. Oh, you have not? No. And are, do you know why? No. Uh, does unclear. Dennis ask the same question? Uh, he's more frightened, you know. No, of you. Does he ask the same question? No. Like, just, honey, why aren't you frightened? Um, I'm just more practical. I've lived... 20 years in Gush Etzion, it, there's we've been through the Intifada, two Intifadas. Explain these terms because okay. not of all, all of our listeners. Okay, so I live in a, in a block, it's called a Gush block of, uh, of uh, little towns and um, settlements outside of, just south, south uh, west of Jerusalem. 
And um, it's been a bone, it's been a place of contention and uh, difficulties with the our uh, Palestinian neighbors for a long time. During the first intifada, there was a lot of uh, shootings on the road, a lot of deaths. Um, during the second intifada as well, two, three years ago, it became like a war zone in the uh, shopping center at the Gushitzion Junction. Yes. A lot of people we know have been killed. Recently, our dear friend Ari Fold was uh, murdered yes. um, in in the shopping center that I go to every day. So uh, I think if you became frightened, you would not be able to live uh, functionally and happily there. And I think you just do the best you can. Keep yourself aware of your surroundings and uh, know where you are. Know where you are and uh, accept it. Have you experienced fear in other aspects of life? Um, As an example, taking your medical exam. As an example, God forbid, if your parents weren't well. Okay, so my only fear is your parents. Is my parents. Because you love them so dearly. Yes. Yeah. Because I think that children of Holocaust survivors are a little bit different in how they relate to their parents. Yes. And it's just a whole different thing. Um, Well, how, how do they relate to their parents? I can't speak for everybody. I'm just saying for myself. Yeah, tell it, us. The boundaries are not clear. You know, my parents are me. I am my parents. If I didn't have my husband holding me back, I'd just pick up, leave my family, move to Canada and take care of them. And but that, now, why is that? Because I felt, um, I always feel I don't want my father to feel any pain, yes. any hurt, any, uh, on both my parents. I want to, them to have be happy. They gave me so much. They gave me such a wonderful, happy childhood. I'm using the word happy. Okay. They made me a wonderful, stable, uh, fulfilling childhood and gave me every opportunity that they could. They sacrificed everything for me. I was their life, me and my sister, and I want to give that back to them. I and, don't. And your mom and your father, you said, are a team in this. Total team. So so two pure, two people married correctly. Yes. Like soulmates found each other. Yeah. It wasn't clear at the beginning, yeah. but... <laughs> Yeah, right, right. one's a you know Hungarian immigrant and one's a Canadian. Yeah. grew up in uh, Ontario, but uh, you know, but they were uni focused in building a uh, stable um, family that could allow their children to grow and develop. So, so, so let's dive right in here. We've covered wearing somebody else's shoes appropriately. Okay. As far as ca- how happy can people be? You say that's sort of a, a collage of imagery coming together to create it's complex yeah right right very i would tell you one thing though you seem uh happy you do seem happy i would say that i'm grateful yes for the opportunities that i've been given by my parents and my husband and i'm so grateful to be able to live in israel I'm grateful. People ask me, is it hard? Is it this? No, I'm happy. I'm grateful. And uh, also, when I went to Kilimanjaro, say, how do you do that? How was it? Is this hard? That was the best thing that ever happened to me. I loved it. Did you? I loved it. And um, it's not comfortable, but it was just, I was grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful for everything that I, I've been given. And I, you know, I pray and I hope that it continues. So, so, so you're living the life you're supposed to live. I feel that. Uh, do you have any huge or otherwise regrets? Is there stuff where you say, oh, shit, you know, why didn't I do this, right? Everybody has that. No, everybody has that. Can you yeah. tell us what one of your regrets are? I knew you were going to ask that. Sorry. I was like thinking, what's <laughs> ever I'm going to ask him? I was like, he's going to ask me about a regret. And I asked you this because I want to know the Gabrielle Klein makeup. I'll tell you my one regret. In sync with what the show was trying to do. Okay, so I don't really 
like to focus on regrets at all. I don't think it's it's helpful or healthy. And I th- don't think there's such a thing as regret because um, you pick a path, you go with it. I'm going to give you a regret. Don't worry. I'm not, not evading the question. <laughs> I'm not getting bored. Don't <laughs> okay. worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm not evading the question. Um, I don't. I think uh, when you take, you know, you take certain paths. You yeah. know, there's a fork. You know, two roads across a yellow wood, whatever. Two roads diverging in yellow wood. And there's a fork, and you choose one one way. Right. Then you have to just go with it. That's what it is. And you can't say, oh, I wish I would have taken the other way because you have no idea what the other way would have brought either. You could think it may have brought something else, but it may have not. My one regret is um, not moving. Is mo- I, I don't have a regret about moving to Israel, but have a regret of leaving my parents. I didn't want to leave uh, my parents, but I knew that my parents would want me to fulfill my dreams and be, be live my best life possible. But I would like to be able to see them every day. I would like very much that, but I can't have that. So, did, did you cry for a long time after you met the, left them? No, because my parents are amazing. They came twice a year. Did they? And I came two or three times a year. Okay, so let's get into this already yeah, yeah. because you're teasing us here. <laughs> the carrots in front of us. I, I don't often hear statements similar to the ones that you have made, which I saw on uh, the internet. And this is what you said about your parents in introducing your father in 2018 in Efrat, when he spoke uh, to a number of people about his experiences in the war. You said something along the lines of, I had the most stable childhood one could imagine. Right. Right. Highly descriptive. Yeah. Right. Throws out an idea out there that most children would say, oh, my God, if I only could have said that. Wow. I think that's an anomaly. And you actually said, too, my father taught me about geography. My father taught me, taught me about world history. My father taught me about decimal system and about the metric system even before it was implemented here in Canada. And you said, I thought this was normal. I did. Right? <laughs> right. I know, And I know that feeling because people come out of their homes when they're 12, 13, 14, 15, and they look around and I go, oh, shit, man. This, right. my, like, my family's different, right? Right. So just talk to me a little bit about that. How positive was it in your house well it wasn't like any emotions were talked about or dealt with Mm. but there was a lot of stability in terms of every day you had to do the same thing and you knew exactly what was expected of you the only thing you had to do was go to school and study that's it nothing else mattered and everybody and my parents were there to serve and help me go to school and study so you get the good grades, you study, you show up. You know, there's there's the story of my dad driving me to school when I ran over, ran over my foot with a bicycle. Right. I, had my, I was limping at school and I think my foot was big contusion and yeah. squashed. And I went to the principal after like five hours of pain. And he said, well, your dad brought you, so you kind of have to stay here. And <laughs> that was about it. You know, it's just like you do whatever, whatever it takes, no matter what. And you always live up to your responsibility. And I never, I was actually quite a rebellious teenager. Were you? Yeah. Like how so? Um, you know, my parents never really gave us curfews. Uh, you know, I stayed out late at night. I, you know, went around, did whatever I wanted. I was very adventurous. I felt I could do anything. So I did a lot of stuff. Uh, there was not a lot of restrictions on anything except that you had to go to school. So even if I would walk in at three, four in the morning, I'd be up at school at seven in the morning. And that was fine. Uh, they weren't helicopter parents? Nope. Because they had gone, your father had gone through the war? Nope. 
So he wasn't incredibly worried about you all the time, my little girl? Or there's two girls in your family, my little girls? Um, if he did, he didn't say anything. Right, which is a blessing. Yeah, he didn't say anything. If they said that they were, they never said they were upset that we moved to Israel, but I knew. I, I read my parents since I was a little girl and knew what they were thinking. So I try to preempt that, you know, try to make sure that I brought the grades home. And it was very helpful. It was, was it? Very helpful. Because you stick to the structure no matter what. Well, which, which they laid out for you. Yeah, they said, uh, you know, you go to school. And then we came home. My dad was home. We'd eat dinner together. We all four of us would sit in a little nook and eat dinner. And, uh, you know, you had to finish your whole plate. My poor sister would hide her food under the table and I would just give me more, give me another helping, love food, yeah. even then. And there was always a home-cooked, you know, healthy, well, high-fat, but healthy dinner. Was your mom a good cook? Or is she? Yeah, she liked, she liked to cook. My dad did some of the, a lot of the cooking. He so did? We, yeah. Like what? Do you remember what he the cooked? The inner schnitzel. They would take out, you know, this was the big event. They'd bring home a piece of veal yeah. and deep fry it in a deep fryer so, with a schnitzel like actual real Wiener schnitzel that you know the guys coming back from uh, from Europe to Israel on Thursday night stop in Vienna for the real Wiener schnitzel right, okay right, right. so um, they would make um, spaghetti and meatballs but like I remember my plate being overheaping overheaping and I was little and I had the whole plate you would finish it all oh yeah oh yeah and my dad if I wanted more he would give us the food off his plate well, what would happen if you wouldn't finish your meal? We just never didn't do it. That didn't happen. Okay. We just didn't. Yeah, yeah. You have yeah. to finish the plate. Yeah. You know. So, so, so you adored your old man. Like you wanted, you said, I wanted to be with him all the time. Yeah. He went out and he worked the garden, right? Every night. And then you would help him with the garden? Um, no, I was supposed to study. So I would, I actually, my window would be facing the garden. I was lucky. And I would watch him in the garden. It was a very stable comforting fixture and then later can you he, see that picture in your head right now 100 percent. his back towards you or his face towards you it, his back is towards me and he's working on the vegetable garden yeah. or he's mowing the lawn and you never always without a shirt yes. and uh, i think he grew up in a farm yeah. so um we had a nice garden growing up with beautiful fruit trees and i loved watching him in the garden and then at a certain point we had to build a fence so i helped him i remember that that was a very fond memory what, what kind of fence? It was like a fence where he, we had to put in cement and then we put in the poles and I would hold the pole and he would put the cement in and then we'd run the wiring and we did that for maybe, it was only two months, I guess, or three months. But So, so your father knew a lot and he was prepared to teach you? Yes. Like how did he know so much about world history? Just really well read. He was very well read. And he well also lived a lot of it. <laughs> he lived through, <laughs> right, right, he right. Lived through World War II, yes. communism. He lived in uh, post-communist Hungary. For, from 1944 to 56. Then he came to Canada. He was this very proud Canadian. And um, so he lived a lot of it. He knew we used to, our games on Friday night were uh, going through an atlas and um, getting the capital countries, memorizing the capitals of all the countries. Did you do this stuff with your kids? No. Nope. How come? It was a different time. Um, yeah. I was also busy. I was busy. But like Friday night? We played games, but I was I'm, I was less patient because I was busier. I had, you know, a bigger family and more demands. I was working harder. Yes, um, yes. You know, I was living in a new country. I was an immigrant. He was also an immigrant, but yes. um, different. So tell me about Evelyn, your mom. What's she like? So my mom grew up in, her father was uh, 
like a rabbi in all the Ontario small towns. He oh. came originally from Lithuania. And he, they came, you know, I think right after World War One, And he, she was born in Aurelia. Her father had a, what do they call it? Like he was the Mohel rabbi Shochet in, in Aurelia. A shtod, they call it a shtod. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And Guelph. And then when she was about 16, 17, she moved to Toronto and grew up in Toronto and went to Harvard and grew up in Toronto. And what met was my her dad. maiden name? Your, your mother? Baron Zahn. Okay. And um, she uh, she met my dad at a Y dance and she gave him the wrong phone number. Why? Because he was a greener. Uh-huh. He was, a, you know, an immigrant and he had an accent, but he persisted. Well, how did he find her? I don't know. He found her. That'd be an interesting story. Yeah. So, so your mom, your mom, is she prim and proper? Is she a woman of history? What, what, what sort of character does she have? My mom is fun. She is fun. Yeah, kind, generous. Yeah. She was used to read poet. We were just mentioning yesterday. Used to read poetry to us when we were younger. She was always also. She was on the same page as my dad, trying to better herself, better her uh, kids. You know, she, I remember she cried when I got into University of Toronto. Did she? Because she always wanted, you know, to go to university. She actually went back in the 70s. It was hard because my dad was a more traditional husband. She went back to her, get her psychology degree, degree at York. I remember. How old was she? I don't know. 40s. Yeah, my father did something similar. That yeah. is so inspiring, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very yes, inspiring. And she, um, you know, she was, I don't know if she's had such a stable home, but she raised us in a very stable home. She provided all this, all the stability. She f- was the homemaker. A feminine woman like to dress up? Absolutely not. It, oh, she did not? No. But you do, though. Because I learned that from my mother-in-law. She likes to dress up. My mother-in-law, Dennis's mom. Yes. So she, when I got married, Judith Friedman Klein, in memory. Were you close with her? Yes. In the uh, years I'm really that sorry we for first, your, I'm sorry for your past. Yeah, in the years that we we were first married, it was just me and her, and you know the, some of the single kids, and uh, she taught me a lot. She taught me everything. Very elegant woman, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. Very elegant. elegant. She taught me a lot on how to be, how to cook, how to dress, how to put yourself together, and um, she was a very strong, inspirational woman for me. And she taught you well, like you you weren't defensive about it. No, oddly enough, because mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws. Oddly you know. enough, I was not. I was eager to learn. But I'm always eager to learn. That was my nature. Mm-hmm. Wherever I could learn from somebody, mm-hmm. I was eager to learn. Mm-hmm. So she taught me. Taught me how to cook. You know, everything, like everything that she taught me, I use today. Well, so you must miss her, right? Well, and you know, when we moved to Israel again, we don't see, you know, she didn't come. My parents did come. So when we moved to Israel, we left a lot of family behind. A lot of family. And that was incredibly difficult for me. Um... But it was, you know, it was a great uh, desire of mine and, and a great uh, hope and uh, goal to move to Israel since I was very little. I was always a big, uh, wanted to move in Israel. I feel comfortable in Israel. It's, it speaks to my personality. I often wonder to myself, this is one of my regrets that I'm not in Israel. And I often wonder to myself, what's it like on the first day or what's it like on the first week or the first month? What's it like when you land in Israel and you go to your new home and you look around and you are in the Middle East and Israel is you're now the place where you live, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is not. That must be an incredible moment. Yes, it was, the first year or two was just liberating. It must have been. It was just, it allowed me to actualize myself and everything that I was able to do. For some reason, I, I think I was, actually when you asked me about being fearful, I think I was more fearful here. 
That's I, what happens here. That's right. I was. I don't know why. I was very fearful. Right. That's and somehow, right. I'm, I'm not sure why. I, all they kind of just dripped away when I came to Israel because it was more. It felt more natural to me. It felt more like me. Here we're highly fearful because we're a very young country and we haven't experienced a lot. So a few years ago when there was a major snowstorm, the mayor brought out the army, right? Right, I remember that. Uh, I was calling and I was trying to get, you know, people to help my parents in their house. Very inappropriate response. Whereas in Israel, let's face it, hasn't been around for a long time or at least this iteration of it, but its experiences are so deep, life and death all the time, that you have to acclimatize, you have to step up, you have to grow up, and you have to let go of some of that fear or you won't survive. Or you won't be happy. You will, Oh, I use that word again. You, you won't be fulfilled. You won't have a very uh, full life if you're afraid to go places, if you're afraid. There are people that live like that. They're afraid to go in a public yes. place. Yes. Or I just go where, you know, it works for me. So, so, so Gabrielle, you're here in Toronto and you decide at some point in time you want to become a doctor, as you said before. Right. Right. Um, wasn't always a lifelong dream? Um, what happened was is that I wanted to become a doctor for a long time. And nobody in my family is a doctor. I have one distant cousin who's a doctor. Mm. Often doctors come from families of doctors, you know. Right, that's true. Very much so. And it's like, you know, boys club. And um, especially in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I always wanted to become a doctor, but then at some point I really wanted to move to Israel. So I figured that if I become an occupational therapist, would take me four years and I can move to Israel quickly and they needed occupational therapists at the time. It was the late 70s. And I said, I'll just uh, quickly become an occupational therapist so I can earn a living and move back, move to Israel. Yes. And then I met Dennis in the middle and uh, I stayed here and I ended up going to medical school after my daughter was born. Was it a match when you met him? Would no. someone match you up? No. 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 Well, no. Why do you say it like that? Um, we weren't in that. In that world? No, we weren't in that world. Okay. So how yeah. did you meet him? Um, Asher is very good friends with his brother and his cousin, you know, all these years. I actually, his uh, father I knew for a long time. His father and his second wife uh, was actually one of my teachers in OT. Oh. Um, I knew kind of around him for a long time. And when I heard he was, the older brother was moving to uh, Toronto, I was just coming out of a long-term relationship. I said, well, somebody set me up with him and they did. And uh Just going back to the doctor part of it. So you're as four years of U of T? Yeah. Med school. How? How was that for you? Amazing. How so? I love learning. Uh, you I do, love huh? medicine. Do you? Loved it. I had, um, I was, it was very challenging because I was the only religious person in the class of 252. The only person, believe it or not, with a child at that time mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. 252. Um, so I had very unique uh, circumstances. Now it's very common for people, especially in Israel, they go to school, they have three, four kids, they take breaks. U of T was very old fashioned school at the time. It's 150 year old school. Mm-hmm. You had to be up there at nine when I walk in late after dropping my daughter at daycare in the morning, they would embarrass me in front of 252 people. Why? And I decided that Miss Mandel decided to join us kind of thing. And then finally I spoke to the <laughs> professor and I told him, listen, I have a daughter and I drop her off in daycare and he left me alone after that. Oh, he, he left yeah, you yeah. alone. Yeah. Never, under, it, never understand why professors or teachers do that. It's so inappropriate. Well, that was old, it was old school. Very old school. It was, it was very, very, very wonderful medical school. I it learned was. a lot. It's fantastic. So, Gabrielle, tell me something about medical school because we who are not doctors, we're not doctors for good reason. <laughs> okay. 
I don't have the memory for it, right? I don't have the ability to sort of pattern together all these pieces of biology uh, that one needs to put together. Uh, would I be very good with blood? Probably not. I mean, there are some fundamental reasons why people decide to be a social worker, as you said before, or do what I did, work in the humanitarian field, and not be a doctor. I find that while many of you guys have uh, not very good bedside manners, although that's being taught more so, I think, in the right. schools. right. Your memories and your ability to 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 recall even the most recent findings, the most recent medicines and so on is absolutely incredible. Like you have a lot up there, don't you? There's a lot going on there of a medical ilk. Yes. Yeah. I love medicine. Yeah. I love it. It's one of my passions. And you read journals? Yeah, of course. All the time, right? Yeah, of course. That's my interest. That's my interest. I love it. I love the whole study of it. I love the history. I loved the science. I love the thinking. I love the practicality. Do I love you? every single part of it. Really? Yeah. It's such a blessing for me. Is it? To be a doctor. Well, okay. So tell me, why is it a blessing to be a doctor? Everybody, choose, there's many, many, many kinds of doctors, many ways you can. Uh, uh, bring your medical training to fruition and work in it. And the way I work in it is perfect for me. Would mm. be terrible for a lot of other doctors. Mm. Um, I can use my, uh, I'm a big connector. I love to connect with people. And that's what I do all day. Mm. I connect with people who are my patients. Um, with some of them are such wonderful people and they bring so much to the table as well. I have tools that I can try to help them with. Yes, I can try to ease their pain. I can try to use their emotional pain. Um, I was given a gift, and the gift was medical school, and then honing it over time with people skills and interpersonal skills. Are you a healer? Wow, I wonder why I hesitate at that question. Because yeah. um, healer to me means like alternative medicine. Let's take it out of that context. Okay. Yes, I would like to heal people, but I feel I'm more of a feeler. I want to be empathetic. I want to, I try often, very often, and it's hard on a six-day work week yes. to open yourself up to people's pain. And um, it's challenging, and that's the fun part. Medicine is, it's very weird to say, but it, when you're a doctor who loves it, it's fun. It's just so rewarding. Yeah. But it's all the ranges of emotions. And that's why I love living in Israel also, because it's all the ranges of emotions. Like what would be an accomplishment for you at the end of the day or at the end of the month? When somebody, a good day is when somebody appreciates or says, thank you for helping me. That's a good day. And, and let's say, what might have you have done to help them? Listen to them. Talk to them. Hit the nail on the head with the right medicine, which is, you know, random and sometimes um, with, a, you know, little side effects. Uh, diagnosing them, yes. helping them to uh, direct them to the right people that need that will help them, uh, supporting their family, giving them kindness. And, uh, you know, I feel that a lot of medicine, and they're starting to talk a lot about this in medicine, is narrative medicine. That's why I'm so excited to talk to you and people that are very interested in stories, because mm -hmm. I feel that stories are a real part, becoming a real part of medicine mm -hmm. as well. And since I've working for so long in this community for like 10 years, I know their stories. And every time I learn new things about them, and when I hear a new story or a context, it's interesting and it helps me treat them and it helps me. Um, 
not only treat, but to be a support. Right, right. So them, as you speak, patients. is a pronoun representing your patients. But I know that you work very closely in the Haredi community. Right. I want to ask you about that in one second. However, I do want to take a step back. Okay. Uh, when I said to you a few minutes ago, most doctors do not have great bedside manners, you were you sort of cringed a little bit as I saw it. Would you agree or disagree with me on that? I don't know because I don't know most doctors. You don't know most doctors. I know I know my friends who are doctors who are caring, kind individuals. Okay. I know the people that work in my practice who are caring, kind individuals. And I know that sometimes I send people to specialists and they're not caring and kind, but there might be reasons for that or they might bring their professionalism to it. And I think as a family doctor, as the primary care provider, that's my job. And if the, they send to the specialist and the guy's not so nice, that's not important to me because I'll provide the care and the support. Let me get, let's get his expertise into the table. Right, right, so. right. Okay, very, very good. I've had experiences with specialists that are have not been very good. Right. Have I had some that are good? Yes, some. I had yes. two heart attacks of my own. So yes, I was exposed never. to the medical industry. Right. And uh, the first thing that happens is you get really tired of it. Right. It's exhausting to be a patient. Right. Right? Right. You know that. Yes. Yeah. And, and, be, and when you go to a doctor and they're checking out your heart, they're checking out your blood pressure, and they either have to put you on water pills or take you off water pills, uh, it's such a sensitive thing for the patient. Right. Right. You want to hear good news. You want to know that everything's going okay. And you don't necessarily want to hear that the doctor is telling you something, which is worst case scenario, so that they're protecting themselves. And I think a lot of people may critique doctors in such a way. I think it depends which medical system you're talking about. I okay. think that the American medical system, I don't know personally firsthand just from my patients and what I hear. And the Canadian medical system is different. The Israeli medical system is a little different. I feel like personally the Israeli medical system is one of the best. Oh, is it? It's one of the best. And, and how do you, why uh, would you say The reason I say that is because in Canada, I, know, I have exposure to the Canadian medical system. Well, I was trained here. I'm a Canadian doctor. But uh, my mom has been in the Canadian medical system and, and my mother-in-law. So I have been exposed to it. And there's some wonderful doctors here mm -hmm. and medicine and professional medicine. Um, but I think because Israel is providing another level because there's an option for private care. So you have your public care. And you have your private care. And they're the same doctors in the public and private care. But in the private care, when you want to pay, you see them in two weeks. In the public system, you'll wait four months. Yeah. So you're seeing the same guy, the same expertise, but you have an option to pay for more care. And even poor people will pay for faster care for more accessible. And it makes it more accessible. And does it work? It works. What about the poor of the poor? The poor they of the poor are get they get me as a doctor. I'm a good doctor. Right, but I'm they have to wait along. They have to wait along. Not long. for me. I'm primary care. So, and if I feel that they need it, I will get them. They're a tertiary care doctor. So, uh, a doctor was telling me recently that every community has its own culture. Right. When it comes to uh, medical Medicine. care, and he said, as an example, he said that uh, the he feels as though working in Scarborough here in Toronto, right. that the people didn't want to complain. You know what I mean? It's, uh, doctor, I don't want to bother you. Right. And the doctor said, you really should because things seem to be acting right. up. But uh, it was to come in there, listen very closely, and uh, and leave and not bother the doctor for a while. But the doctor told me similarly that in our community, i.e. the Jewish community, that he says we're enormous complainers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> he says we're enormous complainers. And uh, a patient will tell you that, look, you're my doctor. That's what you're there for. And I'm going to use you, and I'm suffering, whatever that might be. Um, so if I need to call you every day for a week, I'm going to do that. 
so would, would you agree there are different cultures to different uh, groups of people within the medical field? For sure. I think that was most interesting for me in working in the ultra-Orthodox community, the Haredi community, was learning their culture. Yeah, so what and would that be? What would so that be? when I learned their culture, that was when I have medical students come and when I have, uh, have many, many students coming, I tell them you have to learn their culture. And these are Israeli students that, you know, only know the ultra-Orthodox from the press, which is not so great. And um, you have to know what they're thinking. You have to know what they, ha- you have kind of have to understand when somebody's speaking to you uh, as a doctor, you have to, that's what I'm saying, you have to be constantly aware of what they're really saying. Yes. When they're saying I'm sick with a cold, are they saying I can't handle it? Are they saying they want somebody to say they're going to be okay? Yes. Are they saying they want medicine? I have to always think, what do they want? What is going to be the best for them? And like you say, the person that's complaining and calling every day, I don't mind if they call me every day because that's what they need. Oh, so you're okay with that? Oh, yeah. It's not because that's what they need. Can you think of particular patients who do indeed do that? I have patients that come a lot. Um, and I I know they need that because they're very anxious and they're suffering from anxiety. So you're cool with that. So let's say Mordechai. Well, do you tend to men in the Haredi community? Yes, yes. Is that okay? Yes. Oh, it is okay? Yes. It's okay. They, I'm a professional. It, I'm saying that, uh, you know, there's some wonderful, wonderful things about the Haredi community. The warmth, the closeness. They'll take care of everybody. They take yeah. care of the weak. They take care of the poor. There's never people that are left alone. Yes. Um, they look out for each other. They are kind, very kind. And once they've gotten to know me, they know me. I'm other. I'm other. I'm, uh, you know, I could be anybody. Uh, I'm not in their community. It doesn't matter if I'm religious or not. Um, I'm out of their community, but they've known me for a long time, so they trust me. So let's define Haredi again for, for some of our listeners. How would you define a Haredi Jew? What is a Haredi Jew? An ultra-orthodox, what they say in English is an ultra-orthodox, meaning that they put uh, God and religion first and foremost in everything they do. And they also usually uh, belong to certain sects, uh, you know, and they listen to the leader or the rabbi and they follow very strict community um, rules. I often uh, would compare them to the Amish in a way because they have different set of rules than the Amish, but they're an enclosed community. And they have their own rules, their own ideas, their own beliefs. And if you're going to work in that community, you better know what they are. When we were growing up, my sisters and I in Kitchener, uh, our doctor was in Elmira. Do you know Elmira? Yes, yes. Right near Laura Gorge yeah, yeah, and so yeah. on. And uh, he, w- w- there's a huge Mennonite community right. there. So very often when my parents would be taking us to the doctor, we would be stuck behind a horse and buggy. Right. Okay. And it would take us a while to get to the doctor. Okay. But once we were there and we were sitting in the waiting room with uh, other patients, many of whom were uh, uh, Mennonites, you know, you'd look at them, right? You'd stare at them. You'd wonder about who they are, you know? Um, and why, why they acted in such ways, why they dressed in the way that right. they did. But over time, you start to miss that stuff. It doesn't mean that much to you anymore. It's a very nice ritual that they have using a horse and buggy. It's very beautiful. But they become more and more and more like human beings. I just watched the series Stissel. Did you see it? Yes. So I did see it. And when I first saw it, I said, oh, that's my community. That's the community I work in. Okay. Those are very similar to my patients. Okay. Um, There's other types that I work with. There's many different types. But what I do in my practice and in, in general life, I try to not see, I try to connect to the person's soul. Yes. I open my soul 
as much as I can and try to connect to them as a person. When you do that, you don't see the other side. I don't, tr- I, many people come in and say, the rabbi said this, and I specifically don't know the rabbis in the town, and I specifically don't want to know which rabbi said what, because I don't want to make a judgment. And I specifically don't lo- look at what kind of head covering they're wearing to know what kind of sect they belong to, because I want to judge them by what they're saying to me, right, and right, not right. what their sect is saying, or what you know what's going on between them and their husband. I love treating women. I treat a lot of women. You like treating women? I like treating what, women. Why? I like being an advocate for women and giving them strength and power. How and would you advocate on their behalf? The role of the woman in the ultra-thorosox community is uh, different than what we perceive a role of women in general society. So often, they um, don't have a voice. Yes. And I try to help them in a very small ways get a voice and advocate for themselves, for their own health. And um, I speak to them. I know. I understand. I'm older now that if I tell them to have a mammogram and they don't want to have a mammogram because the rabbi said not to or their husband doesn't let them. If I tell them once, they're not going to do it. But if I tell them every time I see them and I give them examples. Yeah. And I give them examples of what happens. And then I laugh with them when they say they're not going to do it. They'll come back. And eventually they're going to do that mammogram. Well, why would they not do a mammogram? Um, they're frightened. They're making choices. They're not forced. They're just low, um, poorly educated. Um, they don't understand that you know early detection is a hard concept for them to understand. They don't want to be exposed in a... Uh, they don't want to take the bus even to the hospital to go to get... The mammogram it's an uncomfortable experience it's uh medical they figure if they don't address it it won't happen uh, many things their husband won't let them uh the rabbi says that they don't need it uh various things um that they would not want to get a mammogram and as in any community of around it's not unique to the ultra orthodox there are many people that just for emotional reasons yes. don't want to do screening tests i understand completely but it's my job i do what i believe in i believe mammograms are useful and helpful and necessary for women over a certain age and i try to help many of my patients get at them interesting there's some information coming out lately that mammograms may not be what they what we think they are right but you do need a screening okay you do okay. need a screening you You're, need some sort of screening you need a breast exam you need something okay G- G- gabrielle do you do you ever have you ever had so you're in there with the wife and you're uh, telling her it's very important that you have a mammogram have you ever had it where she comes back and her husband will come in or the rabbi will come in or she'll have an advocate from her own community saying you know doctor you're overstepping your boundaries does that occur no it does because not. i'm in I'm already trusted in their community. Do they love you? I don't think that they don't, they don't know what that is. They cannot accept people from the outside. You know, I'm very kind and I'm giving them things that they need. But, you know, if I was not there anymore or if I didn't uh, accommodate them, I don't know that they would, um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But the thing, the most important thing is, is that they trust me in their community. So they're, they know that I'm just saying what, I, what it, I'm trying to do in their best interest. Have you been invited to people's house for Shabbat or no. a wedding? The weddings and weddings were always were invited, invited. Always do, invited. Do you go? I like to go, but I can't always. Because of your time? Because of my time schedule. So but you do a, go sometimes. I, I stopped going because I don't want to pick and choose. Yeah. And yeah. that's not fair, you know, to come to some people's weddings and others not. Uh, they all invite. They all invite. And they, they love when the doctor comes. Um, 
but because they're kind and generous and lovely people they and they are. love to host and you know and uh and i'm very careful not to overstep my boundaries i did actually a few days before i got on the plane i did overstep my boundaries and i was really surprised at myself for the first time in 10 years i told somebody that um i th- i uh, feel that the women should be encouraged not to take so many hormones to monitor their cycles to be accommodating to the men so i i felt very strongly about that but that's not my place to tell them so what happened no she was fine with it i just felt for myself i didn't want to express my own views well why do you think you did that after 10 years that is my view and i felt comfortable enough with her because i'd known her for a long time but I, it's not my place to express my own views about halakha. They are halakha people. Halakha meaning the code of Jewish law. I don't necessarily agree with all. What about the kids? What are they like? The children of the Haredim? As patients, yeah. Well, it's very interesting because a lot of them don't speak English or Hebrew. They only speak Yiddish. And so I feel, I used to feel so bad for them because they can't communicate. Right, right. They cannot communicate with the outside world. Yes. They only learn Hebrew like older, like grade four or five. They start to learn Hebrew. The smarter ones pick it up. So I speak to them in Yiddish and then they're always like shocked. The mothers are going to, oh, a rafam is a bird in Yiddish. Oh, oh you, you speak Yiddish? I, my parents spoke Yiddish to each other, so I understand Yiddish and now I can speak a basic Yiddish. Do you read Yiddish? Yeah, this Vissel. My oh. accent is terrible in every language. But, but, but you can converse? Yeah, I can converse with the children. I don't need to have deep conversations with them. How would you say to a woman, you need a mammogram in Yiddish? No, I don't speak to the women. The women all speak Hebrew to the kids. Um, How would like, you say to a child? Uh, I memorize the tongue. Open your mouth, stick I out your tongue. I memorize the tongue. I often grice it. cook in the oyer. I'm going <laughs> to look good. in your ears. Lig do. Lie down. Stand up. It's not going to hurt you. That's great. You know? That's so, great. Um, but, you know, they're limited in the terms. And they also learn a lot of... Um, I actually try to do my little part in educating them where kids will, uh, youth will come in and say, give me a throat swab. Now, you would never say that to a doctor. Yes. And the, the adults already know to be respectful. So I say to the kid, the girl or the 15-year-old or the boy, and I'll say, listen, take your, they have to pass a card in order to get service. So I say, take your card back and ask me in a very nice way. It will get you a lot farther in life. So they, they listen. They do exactly what I tell them to do. I said, listen, take this lesson. Talk nicely to people, you'll get better. They you, never, they you, just were never educated. They just don't know. They're not bad. They don't know. They so don't know there's a way to talk to people that is more respectful. And and, and this has been a learning process for you over yeah. a decade or so. Yeah, I mean, in the first few years I've been, I would literally, they would come into the room and my mouth would hang up and I go, I cannot believe that woman just said that or that person just said that. My, yeah. my jaw would drop and go, are you kidding? <laughs> but you know, just I'm coming from a different culture. I'm coming from a different space. Right. Um, do you serve uh, Palestinians? Yes. What What uh, would be your client, your base, um, or your patient well, base in that all, area? Well, first of all, I we work. Um, all the pharmacists that work in our clinics are uh, Israeli Arabs and Palestinian Arabs. I think they're most. I don't distinguish. They're just Arabs, um, and they're kind and fun, and we get along. And we all work together. So it's an interesting kind of mix. And the Arabs and the Haredim, the ultra Orthodox, have a lot in common. They work together a lot. Uh, how so? A lot in common? Um, there are a lot of them are workers. A lot of them are uneducated. There's a lot of building going on in this community. There's It's, it's now a community of 30,000. It will be 40,000 in a few years. It's lots of building. A lot of the workers come in. So they get hurt on the work site and they come to the clinic. 
So treat a lot of them. So is that hopeful for you? It's very hopeful and it's very nice of uh, coexistence. And what was very amazing for me when they opened um, this grocery chain called uh, Rami Levy mm-hmm. in uh, the junction of Gush Etzion, where mm-hmm. all the Arabs, uh, Palestinian Arabs, the Jews of the Gush Etzion block and the people from Kirid Arba and as far as Hebron all shop. It's a, it's a junction, a huge junction. Okay. And I was very encouraged because I would go there on Thursday nights and the Arab families would come all dressed up because that's like their Friday night. And the Jewish housewives would be, you know, uh, cook, uh, shopping for the Shabbat, for the Sabbath. And the Arab worker cheese guys would give you your, you know, uh, tell you what cheese to buy. And it was lovely. I said, well, let's get CNN to get here and see what this is like. Yes. But then, you know, a few months later, there was terrorist shootings. There's right there at that blo- at that supermarket. Ari Fold was, Allah Shalom, was killed at that supermarket. Um, so, he was an activist. Ari Fold was an activist. Yes, he was. But there was many other people killed at that junction that were not activists, just randomly standing there. Yeah, you know, I just like to identify people yeah. for our listeners. Yeah. What was that like for you when Ari Fold was murdered? What do you do in situations like that? Um, I think that was... Incredibly sad yeah. and frustrating. Did and you go to the funeral? Yes. Dennis went. My kids went. The kids go. You know, um, I think what was what was most traumatizing for me, uh, of course, Ari, love it, Shalom, but um, was when the three boys were kidnapped. Yes. Because yes. I have to tell you a story because every Friday morning I have a running group and we run in the hills outside of a front. Have you done marathons? Yes, but uh, we run and we were running group and we were running. We ran in our usual six in the morning. We were doing our, you know, 15 kilometer run in the hills and beautiful hills, the fig trees. They're Palestinian uh, farmlands. They're also security roads. So they run in between the Palestinian villages and the Jewish uh, living towns. And, um, and that was at six and at 11 the night before. When we came back from the run and we saw on our phones that the boys were kidnapped. Yeah. And that was exactly in that area. It was exactly there. And every day when I went to work after that, uh, I passed by the uh, bus stop where they were taken and would, had to get out of my car and broke down. Well, um, what, what did you do once you got out of your car? Well, there were memorial candles there. So there just were. crying and crying. Um, the three boys were yeah. young boys. Right. They were in their They teeth. were all our boys. Like there was a, That's what our boys are like. You know, they, they were in between settlements. Um, settlements, meaning uh, little towns. And all our kids hitchhike because there's no public transportation. Right. It's a very common kind of thing. They were abducted. Yeah. And they were murdered. Murdered. Brutally. Yeah. yeah. Did you know these kids? No, but uh, they went to a school that my son went to previously. So did you? Oh, your son hadn't been there at the same time. No, no. But so, you know, since his since then, the families have, um, you know, gone together and made, they're incredibly unbelievable people. And they've made a foundation to bring all Israelis together, and they have a day of uh, they have a day of togetherness and understanding. And it's been it was a very traumatic event. For it Israel. must have been. It must have been awful. It was. Uh, you know, I to the point where I had a memorial candle in my house yeah. for them. Um, that was a vi- that was one of the hardest, hardest because it was kind of like all our boys. But yet, you're not afraid for your boys. Things happen. Is that an Israeli thing, or is that from your father as a survivor? 
it's kind of like a life coping skill for most people, I think. You know, if you're going to, there's lots of things that happen. You know, people are on, you know, my husband uh, travels on a plane twice a week. Plane crashes happen, as yeah, shalom. but right. you know, you can't think about that. Um, people do all sorts of things. When I'm climbing Kilimanjaro, every step was a danger. I'm not young, but I liked it. I prepared for it. I did what I could to make it as safe as possible. And then, you know, I hope for the best. Just one more question about medicine. When I was thinking about this interview, I, uh, I firstly obviously have a very challenging time with uh, uh, the medical lexicon. Sure. I'm very close with a few doctors, one of whom is Dr. Michael Silverman, who is a brilliant, brilliant infectious disease doctor. He and I uh, started via Hafta together with some wow. other people. And we used to go on medical missions to Guyana and Zimbabwe. Um, and he did a lot of research and he's been published in uh, major medical journals um, and some of the stuff that he has come up with has changed the world. Wow. So I'm also very uh, honored and feel very, very blessed to have taken part in some of that um, and to have some sort of affiliation with the medical field. But through talking with him, I, I often feel as though uh, literally he's speaking another language. Um, because I'll ask him a simple question and he'll come back with very complex answers using monosyllabic words. So, Michael, what I was thinking of to ask you was, so you come to Israel, you're a doc, and you have to remember, you have to converse, you have to develop your Hebrew, your Yiddish, it seems, but then you also have to learn these difficult medical words in Ivrit, in Hebrew. So I did. I took a doctor's opan. Oh, there's a doctor's opan. Yeah, I did not so know that. So I went to what, what is an opan, by the way? An opan is where they teach you the the language. And so I went to an eight month course, oh. and I had to pass the licensing exams. And so I learned the medical jargon through that. So that was not a problem. And, and it's still not. No. Is no. your Hebrew impeccable? No, I, my Hebrew is good, very good. But my accent is terrible. Is, is it? It's terrible. And I figured out that uh, where my husband, who speaks much less Hebrew than me, yeah. it sounds like an Israeli. Yeah. Because if you're very musical, your accent is much better. And I'm not so uh, musical. Oh, That's oh. what I thought. You don't sing. No. And I'm not so musical. And I thought... That's why my accent, I sound terrible. I sound like where people are answering me in English, but my I can write and I can read and understand and converse in Hebrew, and I do have a good vocabulary. Uh, so when people become more what they call vatiki, more veterans in, in, in their particular place in Israel, you're right, they start to roll their R's. Really? Do, do you roll your R? Absolutely not. My You don't? My my accent is terrible. Okay, can we hear Manishma? No, you cannot Just hear speak me. a little here. You spoke Yiddish for us. Come on. <laughs> That's right, because I don't think anybody would recognize the uh, Yiddish accent, are, but you have a lot of Israeli <laughs> listeners, I'm sure, and they'll make fun of me. So are you conscious of when you speak Hebrew? No, because uh, most of my Hebrew that I speak is in the medical, like with my patients and when I'm working. Okay, so, but not at home. Not at home. So, uh, well, yeah, with some of my kids' friends, I do speak Hebrew, but... Um, and also with the schools and stuff like that. But most of my really good Hebrew is medical jargon. So I can, you know, give you instructions on how to take medicine. And and, and I think mostly in Hebrew and I write in Hebrew. And you read the newspapers, you listen to the news. Yes. Okay. Do you know any complex words in Hebrew? Like yeah. lugubrious. Lugubrious. Lugubri? <laughs> I'm just showing up. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what lugubri is. Are you saying it wrong? 
You know what word I used to be excited about? Shiputzim. I used to love oh, the you word like shiputzim. That word. Yeah. Okay, I know. Have somebody... you done shiputzim in your house? No, we haven't you done shiputzim yet. Not yet. Not yet. So, so Gabriel, so you have six children. Uh, you're involved in, in a community which really has no choice but to be communal. To to but does that also culturally and religiously gives to one another, shares with one another. You spoke about the Haredi community of which you're exposed to. Um, so inevitably, most Israelis I know on some level are involved in giving outside of themselves. Of course. You, in your case, you fell across an organization which is called Shalva. Right. It's an amazing organization that my niece, my eldest sister's daughter, Dina, just worked with. She actually coordinated a concert that they did abroad. And uh, essentially their mission statement is what? I think they're... I'm not sure their mission statement. I don't know exactly, but they're, they provide uh, complete care for kids with uh, Down syndrome and developmental disabilities. And they're, I think right. it's a game changer. I think it's a game changer. And I think that the same way that uh, people come from all over the world to see what they're doing there. I've never seen such a positive, um, good energy place and the way they they treat and not treat, the way they work with and provide an amazing home. Yeah, yeah. And place for kids with Down syndrome and and for the whole family is just game changing. So I read some of the comments about Shelva, and I myself have watched some of their YouTube videos. Yeah. It's really worthwhile watching, right? Um, because they have a choir that they've right, developed, right. and they're magnificent. Right, they're amazing. Just magnificent because you look at somebody who has Down syndrome. Is that the way, right way of saying it? Yeah. That Down person syndrome. has Down. Yeah, yeah. You don't say they're Down syndrome. No, they have Down syndrome. Or autistic children. You don't say they're autistic. Uh, Do you? I'm not sure the exact jargon because I don't work in that, you know, I'm not hearing, but somebody has Down syndrome. They have Down syndrome. And you're watching them stand by the microphone when they're about to sing and you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is very nice, but let's get through this. And then you listen, you go somewhere from inside of that person's soul, regardless of how they look outwardly. God decided to implant magnificence when it comes Absolutely. to their music, right? Absolutely. It stirs you. It moves yeah. you. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So you like listening to music. Yeah. You just don't like singing. <laughs> right. So, uh, that's right. Do you want to sing something now? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll leave that to my kids so, and husband. <laughs> so Shalva comes along and they have these very creative fundraisers, one of which is, hi, how are you doing? You ever thought about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro? Exactly. And, and you had. Yes. So one day I'm I'm uh, looking through my emails and uh, one email comes in and it says uh, Mount Kilimanjaro is waiting for you. Turns out I found out later from the fundraiser they sent out thirty thousand of those emails. They're waiting for a lot of people. And and um, I and I think even my husband got it. He everybody ignored it. I opened it. Yeah. And I started to talk to some people in my community about going with me and I was very excited about it because it was the perfect. Uh, of raising money for an organization I incredibly believe in. Of uh, It was a kosher, uh, Sabbath-observing uh, group of people that were going uh, October 2018. And it was also kosher vegetarian, which is, was amazing for me because it would have been kosher. It wouldn't have helped me because I'm also a vegetarian. Oh, you're so, a vegetarian? Yeah. You don't eat meat? No. Since when? 20 years? Really? Long time. Long well, time. Why don't you eat meat? Uh, not, not, not any ideological reason. It just, it's not, doesn't work well with me. It's no, it just doesn't sit. Yeah. I'm just happy. I, I love the vegetarian diet. You don't miss chicken. No. You don't. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, you don't. My son is vegan. Oh uh, yeah. Vegan so, is challenging for kids. Uh, less so here. 
Um, There's we, a lot of vegan restaurants. There's right. a ton of vegan food out I there. I love vegan as well. So yeah. my my kitchen here is mostly vegan. I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian. But because my son is vegan, right. I've been exposed to it. And I have to make him vegan food. And I adore it. It's amazing. Uh, it's a, outstanding food. Right. Have you ever had a cabbage steak? Yes. Oh. I love that. Love I, that. Right? Right? Love that. Love I know. That. I, I, you know, I go years vegan vegetarian so this this is my vegetarian time portobello mushroom <laughs> love burger that. steak yes oh Amazing. i know i love that i have to come to your house and eat yeah you should come over you're welcome anytime yeah i'm agoraphobic oh right it's really hard for me to travel can we but come I, in can we come and hold your hand and bring you yes probably okay. last time i went to israel it was seven or eight years ago it took me months <laughs> so we'll have to come and pick you up after I'm putting i, you on I plane. so want to come there's so many things for me to do there yeah a huh? lot do you have a pool Absolutely not. Because I swim. Oh, well, okay. Why absolutely not? It's hard to maintain a pool in the front. Well, it's on the mountains. It's cold. Yeah, it would be a sloping pool. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so Kilimanjaro. So firstly, tell us about this big creature of Kilimanjaro. How high, how high is it? So it's 5,800 meters high. Um, Which is doable. It's definitely doable. There's, it doesn't involve like, ever, you know, after base camp Everest, you have to use climbing gear. It's not. You don't have to be a climber. You can just be any person. And you just have to be in shape to be able to walk for nine to ten hours a day. It's a lot of walking uphill. Um, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge with Kilimanjaro is the high altitude with low oxygen. Yes. And you don't use oxygen in Kilimanjaro. Your treatment is if you can't handle it, you just go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and the acclimatization is a big thing. And it was a real big, that was a real challenge for me. And I, I loved it because um, I loved showing my kids that it was hard for me. Because often my kids will see me, oh, you've done this, you've done that, you're a doctor, you're this, you do this, you volunteer this, you speak here. And they never see this, they didn't see the struggle because I was already that when they got older. And they saw me struggle with this. They saw me walking around with my hiking shoes for months. They saw me walking, you know, training, being scared. I was scared. Yeah. Oh, Why were you scared? Because I didn't want to get sick. So I didn't want to get hurt. Lack of oxygen? Lack of oxygen, altitude sickness. Uh, I didn't want to get hurt. You know, um, I was scared. When you say get hurt, are there, are there, uh, what are they called? Are there areas where you walk where, God forbid, if you fell? Like yeah. if you stepped wrongly? Yeah, I would picture uh, that. Yeah, it's 250 meter drop. But you don't. You just don't. You're okay with heights? Yes. So who, okay, so you start this this walk. Who are you with? So I went with two friends that I had, that we had recruited together. We had trained together from uh, Efrat. And there was a, uh, there were seven other people and uh, a couple of people from uh, London, a couple of people from New York. Uh, they were all men except for me and my two friends. And we're all this, within the same age group. It was, the oldest guy was 70. And he was, um, he was an ex-army guy, I'm not sure, you know, from the States. So there was just us three and one other uh, guy our age from... Uh, from somewhere else in Israel. Yes. And then uh, from people from London, South Africa. There was a South Africa, there was a guy from Australia who was a business partner of one of the guys from London. He wasn't even Jewish, but you know, he uh, believed in the climb and he was excited about it. He was great. We all got along really well. So so you step on Mount Kilimanjaro, you're ready to go. What happens the first day? The first day you start walking in a rainforest and uh, Ashley wasn't feeling well the first few days. And I told the guides, that I'm going to turn back on Friday. It was the last time you could turn back. We started on Tuesday and we ended on a Wednesday. So it was eight or nine days up on the mountain. And then by Friday, thank God, I was feeling better already. What, what was wrong? Well, I was just, I had a fever. I had, I wasn't well. So, a high fever? No, I was just still, I was just not well. And when uh, you're not well because you're a doc, 
do you have something that I don't have? Like, do you, do you know how to take care of yourself? Do you yeah. know, yeah. I know exactly what's yeah. happening. Yeah. I'm going to be I took fine. Antibiotics and we had a doctor on the trip actually okay. that they sent from the uh, expedition. And uh, wait, what I loved about the trip was, first of all, I never thought that I would ever get to Africa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, it was very exciting for me. Was uh, it? Yeah. And uh, I would not have gone if it wasn't involved because it was very hard for me, the incredible poverty and yeah. the incredible I just didn't want to be, I don't want that. I don't, it's very hard for me. It's heartbreaking and sad. So, so once I'm we like got out, well, once we got out of the cities though, out of the shanty towns and got to the mountain, I was excited to be in the nature. That's what I like to be. I like to be in nature. I like to, uh, it was very liberating. It was the first time in my life since I was 10 years old that I was not responsible for somebody else. That's how you felt? Yeah. Why since you're 10? Well, when I was younger, you know, I, as a child of Holocaust survivor, I you see. always want to protect your parents. I was the oldest. I took in all their pain and I was very sensitive. And uh, I felt that I had to negotiate the world for them. You so know? you were free on Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. All I had to do was walk, wow. eat, That's and so sleep. Cool. It so was amazing. What was that like, Gabrielle? It was amazing. It was. And the people I was with, they're all like, very healthy, highly functioning, <laughs> right, right. really great people yeah. um, that we didn't know each other so well before. And we just got along really well. And it was just very quiet. It was quiet on the mountain. Often I was walking on my own, which was very liberating. Um, and it was just about my own self, my own body, pushing my own body and just eating when I needed to eat. And What would you think about? I didn't think about much, which was so liberating. So you were me. sort of zen. I was zen. Yeah. Is that what it is? I didn't know how to yeah. describe it. Thank yeah. you, Aram. You put when, that together for me. When you do the long distance runs. Yeah, you're and zen. Some, and yeah. at some point you start thinking, your mind stops going around and around and right. around. You're zen. When my mother used to swim here in this building in the pool, which I do now, yeah. she used to say she would get into the pool and she would leave her troubles there. Right. So now when I go swimming, I actually see some of her troubles there, but just kidding. <laughs> um, but what she was saying was she was Zen. In other words, she let go. She right. allowed herself just to be. Because I was on the mountain. I had no cell phone. So the kids couldn't call. No. Nobody could call. Nobody could talk to me. And the only thing I had to worry about was putting one foot in front of the other, which was challenging. It is. It was challenging it physically. And I'm in pretty good shape. It was challenging for me physically. That was a big challenge for me. And it was a lot of hiking. I had prepared. But it was a lot. Bigger and than you thought it would be? No. Well, I did a lot of research. A lot of research. So but. I'm trying to imagine you going up the mountain. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that. It took how many days again? So we started out on Tuesday morning. We we Every day we would go up yeah. and then go down a little. It's called the commentization where you go up and then go down a little. What was great about it is you started off in a rainforest. You went up and then it starts to get cooler. Then it was like minus one, minus two, snowing at night when you're sleeping in the tent. And then you went up more and it got colder. And then during the day, sometimes it was pouring mm -hmm. all on you, like heavy pour, but you had the rain gear. So long as you have the gear, you're fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, they've served us the most delicious Did meals. They? There were, there were, I think there were 53 porters and 10 climbers. So you, oh, really? you, you have to go up with a lot of staff. And I felt like, Everybody's like, is that hard? I go, that was luxurious. They were <laughs> making me food, the most delicious food, green banana soup, food I never eaten. Green oh. banana soup, plenty. They would put it on your plate. They professional guides, amazing, amazing, amazing group of guides and porters that we got very, very close to that come from a very different 
you know, culture and life. And, you know, I trusted them completely with my life. They held our hands as we crossed. They held our pack on the last night. You know, um, they gave you food according to your body weight. So they 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 served you the food, making sure that you ate, wow. which is really important when you get up to the high altitudes, which has never been my problem. So I loved eating. And they said, oh, when you get up there, you're going to get nauseous. No, loved it. <laughs> I was loved just the fine. food. <laughs> I'm just fine. I love they would make us cake. They make cake. They didn't have running water. We had no running water and no electricity. And they were making gourmet food. Oh, that's fantastic. It was fantastic. Does that does that increase or enhance the whole pro, uh, project? In yeah. Other words, do you say to yourself, yes, th- th- I know this is going to be hard. It's going to be tough for me to breathe. It's pouring rain out there, but and I'm going to be fed well. And yeah, I'm gonna I didn't be even with- know that it was going to be fantastic. I, maybe because we were up there. I don't know, but it was perfect vegan food. And they, oh, they actually brought tilapia fish and they fried it for us. And it was just very liberating for me. I just ate as much as I want, whatever I wanted, whatever they gave me, I ate. They put it on my plate. I ate it. I didn't have to think about anything. We should have mentioned before, when was this? Um, four months ago. It was it, only four months ago. October 2018. So, so what's the aftermath of all of this? Hey, Avraham, you're a great interviewer. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been difficult, actually. How so? Uh, well, a lot of things came together at once. Uh, my mother-in-law passed away, I mentioned before, yeah, at the same yes. time, like a month later. And uh, a few kids uh, moved out of the house at the same time they went back to their where they're supposed to be. And... Um, I, that and uh, then I had done this dream of Kilimanjaro, and then I came back, and now, now so, what? so where are you at now? So now I'm, um, you know, I'm thinking about some uh, things to do with the women in the medical field and putting my story together, actually. And so this was a good opportunity. When you say your story together, what do you mean? I'm trying to put it in a context of uh, the different things that I've done and see how I can uh, use that I've done and experienced and use it to uh, help other people, inspire other people. So I'm not sure how to do that. I'm not, you know, thinking about it. You said a beautiful thing in the uh, YouTube video that you sent over to me that you've been thinking a lot about storytelling, of which yeah. you mentioned that before. And by and large, that's what we're doing right here. We're telling right. your story. Right. It's, it's the nice. Gabrielle Klein story. Right? right, of which there was never one, and there will never be another. Right, that's that's the beauty of life. Like right. we're the only ones who will ever exist in this guise, in this way, right. in this body. Right, right. So, are you happy with your story overall? Are you satisfied with it to date? Of course. Are you doing okay? I'm doing okay. You are doing okay. Yeah, but it was interesting for me. It's like now I'm a grandmother, and you know, I've gotten older. Yeah. Um. I never realized things that may have been obvious to other people. I don't know how to explain it. It got a new perspective on what my childhood was like, who I was, what I project. What I see on the inside is not what I'm projecting always on the outside. And now how, it's how just they more, differ? and now it's coming together. It's coming together. And how did they differ? Well, I often would feel inside, I think with a lot of people, um, feel inside the struggles and the um, the emotional pain or angst or existential angst. And then what you project on the outside is perfect competence and doing all sorts of interesting and, and challenging things. But I never saw it like that. I just see the challenge and the task in front. Yes. And now when I'm looking back and, you know, reevaluating the next little while and seeing how bringing those two together, projecting what actually is going on inside. Do you like yourself? Wow. Uh, of course. If I didn't, it would be 
I haven't always liked myself. There's many times. Oh, that I beat myself up a lot. Th- there's many times I spent many years beating myself up, and yeah. I think that's part of the progression of. Uh, that's what I was talking about. Yes, that's I what understood. I was referring to. Right. I spent many years beating myself up. You're not good enough. You got to go farther. You your your race time isn't strong enough. Anything that you can see that anybody's going to do marathon running, that's going to do. You're constantly beating yourself up to do better, get farther, to get the better grade. Uh, you know, and at a certain point, you say enough. It's good. Do you judge your children differently than you judge yourself? I was very judgmental as a young parent. You were very... Judgmental of my kids as a young parent. I'm much more tolerant right now as an older parent. I still have young kids. Judgmental of their behavior or their successes or lack thereof? Like in other words, you didn't get a high enough mark or you could be a better person? I set the bar very high, but toward to my own standards. So everybody has their own standards and everybody has to find their own way. Um, I think what my parents gave me most importantly and I really still believe in is being the best person you can be right. in every way. It doesn't matter if it's in that you're giving, in your generosity, in your kindness, is you being a daughter, a sister, a, a wife, a parent. Just be the best you can be in the things that are important to you. So I am very, into, I was much more, but quite, I was quite intolerant of mediocrity. And I'm much more tolerant now because I see the whole picture of where it comes from. Yeah, I understand that. You know what I'm saying? I do. Where people are coming from and there's different things that are going on. So Uh, address those demons and, you know. Part of the show is the belief that uh, the cashier at the gas station across the street um, has depth to him or her in a way that we may not see only because we judge people by their career. So if I were to sit down with that individual who works across right. the street, and I sometimes talk to him when I fill up with gas, he's from India, I believe. You can see, uh, boy, oh boy, there's character there a right. lot. Right. And you can see that there was another life there at some point of which that man uh, may have been a doctor. Right. That, that must break your heart, doesn't it, in Israel, where you meet someone who can't be a doc there? Came from Russia. Um, I think I think I think that uh, I was just going to say when you were saying about the gas station attendant, and I think that in maybe in Canada, I'm not sure people are judged more by the careers, but very much less so in Israel. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not a cultural thing. You're not judged by your career at all. So you go to a party, uh, people don't say ma tosa. No. What do you do? Never. Ma mixoa. No. They don't. No, that's not that's not important. Uh, it's men more- as well, because men often just to get some grounding in the relationship say, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" They no, don't- it's a it's no, it's more like uh, you know, um, it's more of a personal connection. I I don't know how to explain it. It's not about what you do. It's uh, sometimes about how much you give. Okay. Okay, how much you give of your time, like the and there's also like a lot of I find like the nurses that I work with and the secretaries we're all on one level. I have a different job. Right, right. I have a different role. And my role is that I tell them how to implement these things. Mm-hmm. But it's not like their needs and desires are less than mine. Um, I don't know how to explain it. It's Ooh. it's a different culture. How many, di- how many how many grandchildren do you have? Two. What was it like when you held the first one in your arms? It was very exciting. Very exciting. Do you remember the moment? Yes, of course. I was there. I was very excited. You were there, I imagine. I was there. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. Different than holding your own children? It was close, you know, my I have a young I have a younger 
I have a child that's 17, so he was 13. So yeah. it wasn't so far away. Mm -hmm. um, but it was beautiful. It's beautiful to see the continuity of uh, the generations, of course. And I, I, of course, being who I am, my most important thing was to show this my grandchild to my parents. Uh, yeah, what was that like for you? It's very exciting for me, but it has to be on video, FaceTime. Okay. And, you know, they're not mm -hmm. there. They're not able to come. You know, my daughter comes to visit sometimes and brings them over. Um, but, you know, it to my parents. But it's more about showing my grandchild to my parents. It's all often just looking through my parents' um, my parents' eyes. Is it a victory over Hitler? Is that how you see it? Yeah, oh, yeah. You do? Oh, well, especially when my son donned his uh, IDF uniform and put on his gun and accompanied my father to the Shook. And there's a picture of that. And uh, when he put on his his uniform, um, I could not stop crying. Yeah, honestly. This is, this, is, this is just, this is the victory for my grandmother, parents that were killed, murdered. What, what, and what did your father say? And my father, you know, is not so expressive on that. He said he was scared for him, you know. Um, yes, yes. He was proud of him. Um, but I said, I'm often saying in the speeches I say, if Daddy, if uh, if your parents could see us now, you know, if you could see what we're doing and what their great-grandchildren are doing, it would be, uh, you know, I often try to connect spiritually with my grandmother that was uh, murdered in the Auschwitz, um, uh, who I'm named after. You know, I just have some one vague picture, but I kind of want to hope that she's smiling at, down at me from uh, from in the heavens and being proud of what, who I am and what I'm representing for the family and uh, continuing on for the generations. Do you know about her? Not much. My father was young. They don't know much. My my first cousin has, uh, knows a little more about her. She has some letters from her. You know, she was very tall. Uh, my sister's very tall. And for her, she was, you know, she raised six kids. Um, I don't know much about them. You don't? No. So you've lived in, uh, you live in Israel. Uh, you used to live here in Toronto. Yes. Your father is a Holocaust survivor. Um, I guess in some way uh, you've been exposed to the very difficult, challenging parts of life right. in a way that many people haven't. I think here. I'm not sure. Well, I live in Toronto, in Toronto at Shepherd and Bathurst. It's pretty safe here. Right. We haven't had a terrorist attack here <laughs> no, ever. Not no. at the gas station recently. No, yeah. people get pissed off at you know the rising prices at Shoppers Drug Mart. Right, right, but right. But no one ever says anything here in Canada. Right, We're all right. fine with everything. Right. So are we? Is humankind good? Are we doing a good job? Are yeah. we working towards a better world? I think so. We are. I think so. I think so. If you relate to people as people. And you always try to look for the reasons and the goodness. You know, I know there's a lot of terrorist attacks all over the world, but these are lone, indivi they're individuals. They're individuals. Right. And uh, there's always mental illness. And there's always has been. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see people as basically uh, good and caring and, and giving. And actually Israel's been so, it feels like a second skin to me because it's a giving society. Uh, you know, all our ambulances are volunteers. Yes. And we've got a huge ambulance corps. And uh, it's a privilege to be a volunteer there. Uh, my three girls uh, did national service. They're all volunteers in cancer wards, orphanages. And that's they had to fight for that privilege. And uh, when somebody is in need in the street or in a... It's, it's a privilege to be able to help them. And uh, it's a helping society. But it's a rough place too. So, you know, nothing's, nothing's like... I'm not looking through it through rose-colored glasses pretty realistic so dude are you ever lonely you have a lot of people surrounding you um actually you know i was quite lonely growing up were you 
even though my parents were, it was more my personality, it had nothing to do with my parents, because emotionally there was no room for emotion. Mm-hmm. My dad did not address his emotions. Uh, you know, that was a great coping mechanism, actually. So there was no room for, I was a very passionate and emotionate, emotional young girl, and uh, there was nowhere to express that. There was no room for it. You just uh, did what you had to do and, you know, kept quiet about it. So um, that, I think, bred a lot of loneliness. And then when I, you know, married Dennis, your friend, uh, he's a very emotional person. And he, I never felt lonely because he always was able to uh, hear my emotions, you know, and I was able to express them. And it was more acceptable to express, uh, you know, even till recently, I wasn't able to express fear and I can't do it. And it's challenging for me, yeah. you know, in a real way. Or I, I, I saying I can't do something was is just so new for me. He's an amazing guy, isn't he? Yeah, Dennis. Yeah, like forget the fact that he's your husband, <laughs> okay, and the father of your children and your grand. He really is a unique human being. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we touched on that before, and we're coming near the end of the interview. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about him for two minutes. I, I went to school with him here in Toronto for a couple of years. Yeah to a yeshiva, which is a boys' school, Talmudic school. You know, Dennis uh, has really bitten off a lot in, in life. He's like you that way. He's, um, I don't know if he's type A or not, but he's an individual who not only wanted to be a fine entrepreneur like the rest of his family, but he wanted to reach the top. Right. So he did when he was here. Right. And now I know he's building in Poland. I mean, quite a venture. and. I always looked at him. There's a certain amount of envy that I had because he was his eyes were wide open, always wide open. Right. Right. He wanted to taste. He wanted to learn. He wanted to see. Very adventurous. Yes. Very adventurous. And when you speak to him, he talks. He's got things to say. It's almost like I have too much to say. I have to get it all out. Right. 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 Quite a human being. Quite yeah. a human being. How long have you guys been married? So you were at our wedding. If you don't, I don't know if you remember, but there's I, a picture. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Of after the wedding was over. We're supposed to go back with your husband? No, it was me, you, <laughs> Ellie, and Avram hanging out after the wedding. <laughs> so I'm like, it was great, what have I gotten into? You know, uh, okay, Dennis, like, let's go. <laughs> now let's hang out with you know. So that was actually very warm. And, um, and how many years ago was that? 32, I think. 32. 32 years. My, my, my. You Time guys have accomplished flies. a lot, haven't you? Time is flying. It does, right? It, it felt at some points where, you know, Dennis is very adventurous, so I always felt like, uh, you know, I was hanging on to the back of his neck, flying it around the world after him. He was dragging me around because, you know, I came from this very stable, nothing changed environment. And yeah. Everything we do, we're always changing, moving, going forward, developing new things. Like so you've this. changed because of him? Yeah. And would he say the same thing? Yes. He would? 100%. How might have he changed? Because of you? Well, he's, um, you know, he's uh, likes to stay home more and is less adventurous. And the, the, the stability that I, you know, that I'm always there. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. No matter what. So it doesn't so matter. It doesn't you, matter. You show up no matter what. Right. Right. It's a really, it's a really unique thing, actually. I didn't realize. Oh, it's very, yeah, it's beautiful to look at some uh, marriages. One never wants to judge them too closely. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've made that mistake. But on on the surface, let's say yes. You, I was watching you in one of your YouTube videos, and you really truly were elegant, and you spoke articulately. You don't say ums, mm-hmm. you know. You don't stop in mid sentence. You you know what you're going to say, and it's very clear to you. You spoke openly. You spoke so devotionally about your father and your mother, and I thought to myself, 
both you and Dennis are very elegant people. You really are in your own way. You really are. And not only that, very evolved. The nice thing about being with you and about being with Dennis, you have a sense that our people are striving and that they're growing and that they're learning and they want more. We're always striving for more. You really are. So, I mean, that really is at the essence of, uh, of why when you came to town, you know, I had asked you previously if you want to be a guest and you came to town and I thank you for contacting me and say, yeah, Avram, I'd like to do it. Yeah, it was, it was really actually a privilege. Thank you. Because I really, really enjoyed listening to your radio shows. And, thank um, you. You're a really professional interviewer, thank amazing you. interviewer. It's really, really fun. And I wish you a lot of success. I wish you a lot of success as well. And I thank you so much for that. It means a lot to me when you say that. So just one last thing before we sign off. A message to your children. What do you want them to know from your heart of hearts, from your soul? That's a tough one, Avram, because I don't like to prepackage things, um, you know, and put things in one sentence. Okay. I think that uh, that would be really hard. I know they're going to be listening. Yeah. Um, um, I think they know. They know, you know, be the best you can be. Message. Be the best person you can be. Message to your parents. To my parents. I love you so much. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And clear. I'm so grateful for who you are and what you've given me. And uh, I hope we have, have many more happy times together. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being our guest here at Hat Radio. Thank you it's for been, having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Very, very unique uh, interview. And uh, I look forward to a lot of people listening to it. When you do listen to it, and if you like it, share the link. Uh, because we're working really hard to get a positive message out there. And I think the world really needs it. Would you agree? Oh, I would agree. We need positivity, right? Yeah. Positivity is helpful because positivity breeds positivity. A hundred percent. No like, question yeah. about it. So climb your own Mount Kilimanjaro, right, Gabrielle? Right, right. Everybody <laughs> does their own Mount Kilimanjaro. It, do it. Do it. And uh, ask questions. If you want to be in touch, please do so. Um because I, I'm certainly open to people's ideas. So thank you so much for listening. Thank, thank you. you thank you, Gabrielle. Thank you for being with us. I wish everybody well and God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned. Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height